This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. London. Sydney. Seoul. Tunis. The outrage over the death of George Floyd is global. Defying lockdown measures or foregoing government advice, still they came in their hundreds of thousands, calling for an end to police brutality and institutional racism. Earlier this month, Cambridge, Massachusetts voted to ban facial recognition, joining a growing number of cities in the U.S., including San Francisco, that have outlawed the artificial intelligence software, citing flawed technology. A recent study found facial recognition identified African-American and Asian faces incorrectly 10 to 100 times more than white faces. The study by the National Institute of Standards and Technology found a photo database used by law enforcement incorrectly identified Native Americans at the highest rates. The world has been focused for the past several weeks on racial justice and the Black Lives Matter movement, with millions around the world taking to the streets to speak out against inequality and racism. Technology and concerns about racism and bias have been part of the discussion, with some of the world's leading technology companies changing long-standing policies and practices. IBM has put an end to all research, development, and production of facial recognition technologies, while both Amazon and Microsoft said they would no longer sell the technology to local police departments. Mutale Nkande is an artificial intelligence policy analyst, and a fellow at both the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University and at Stanford University's Digital Civil Society Lab. She's the founding president of AI for the People, a nonprofit that aims to create the narratives needed to create an anti-racist technical future. She joins me on the podcast this week from a busy home in Brooklyn, New York, to talk about this moment in racial justice and technology, racial literacy, and the concerns about bias in artificial intelligence. Mutale, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. No problem. Thanks for inviting me, Michael. I'm, I'm really honored. It's, uh, I am grateful, uh, particularly at this time, and, and I want to obviously get into a discussion around your work on race and technology, which has been is so critical at, at this very moment. But, but you find yourself in New York at a truly remarkable time, given both the response to the George Floyd murder and well, we've seen that in the U.S., in New York, in the U.S., and, and more broadly. But then, of course, also being at the epicenter of uh, public health pandemic uh, as well. And so how have you been managing under these truly extraordinary circumstances? It's kind of day to day. Some days have been really bad because through the, I'll start with the pandemic because that's where we started, but watching, I live in a low income black neighborhood in Brooklyn and watching my neighbors and the people that I that I describe as kind of the background of my life, where they're not super close, but for the last 15 years, they've been a welcome stop when I get coffee or person that helps me into the gym or asks too many personal questions and is a little inappropriate, but they're part of your life. It's like cheers, you know, where everybody knows your name and watching those people die because they were these low income 
black frontline staff who really um, three of the people that I know would give everybody hugs. That was their language. That's how we knew them. And then knowing how they transmitted and seeing uh, April 7th was the uh, peak here in New York. And on that day, 2,500 new cases came into our hospitals, 800 people died. And we were told that if this number rose by even 100 across the city, we would have no medical capability. And living that rather than that being a movie is something that I think I'm going to be processing along with my therapist for a really long time. And then when George Floyd died, and it wasn't so much George Floyd as much as that was a terrible thing to see, but we'd already gone through Admin Aubrey, Brianna Taylor had been killed, and um, uh, McDade, a transgender man in um, Tallahassee, Florida, had been killed. And I think what was so different about the Floyd killing, at least for me, was the other three killings that I mentioned were not up, were not recorded and uploaded to social media platforms. And so here we were, all of a sudden, everybody's home, everybody's at their computer, everybody's sharing content. And this piece of content comes across our social media feeds. And I didn't watch it. I, I've made a policy of not watching uh, lynchings. I think that they're horrible, terrible things. But hearing the reports of how this man was literally, the air was crushed out of him as he called for his mother. So we, we actually watched that point in, of transition. And I feel like people were just fed up and the city rose. They really did. And they still, this is day 16. And tens of thousands of people are coming out day after day, but we also don't have jobs. So it's a really um, interesting, tragic um fascinating time um, in history and in law. It is. And I mean, to hear you describe what you're going, what, what you've experienced personally, which for many of us, something we're seeing play out on television and on social media, but to be at the heart of it is, uh, is, is truly remarkable. And one can understand how challenging it is now. And, and is will something that you'll live with for, for a very long time. You've also been working for many, many years on this area, particularly looking at racial issues through the lens of technology or technology through the lens of race. Can we start with, some of your work on racial literacy and technology and provide at least a, a, some foundational information on, on what that's involved. Yeah, so um, Racial Literacy in Tech is a paper that I published alongside Jesse Daniels, who's a sociologist at the City University of New York, and uh, Dirk Mayer, who's a computer science professor at Bucknell University. And we were all fellows of a research institute called Data and Society. And what we were really trying to do at the time was to create a language by which we could speak about race to technologists. I was thinking policymakers and Dirk Shan, my um, colleague, was thinking about computer science students. And so we were shocked when it was so adopted, but it has three very real elements, which I'll describe and I'll also use kind of what's going on today to depict them. So the first part of the, the first part of racial literacy is a cognitive piece. It's this knowing and understanding that somebody's racialized identity 
leads to certain life outcomes. And this is definitely something that we saw with George Floyd as an example. He um, had grown up in Texas. He was in Minneapolis for a job, but he'd actually had somewhat of a criminal past, which meant that he couldn't, because of the laws that we'd passed, get many of the other jobs that worked in hospitality. So a major part of that story is his structural pushing him out of the workforce. But because he worked in hospitality and we had a public pandemic, he had been laid off and was really, really um, struggling for money from the way the story is told. So when he went into Cup Foods, it was allegedly that he passed a counterfeit $20 bill. That's since been refuted. But another structure that pushed him into that situation was a law, a local law in Minneapolis that if somebody comes in with a fake 20, whether it's fake or not, but you suspect it's fake, you have to call the police. And that's how that happened. So in the racial literacy structure, we would, in the racial literacy framework, we would be aware of that structural reality. The second part is an emotional reality, which we also kind of saw in the Floyd story, where if the $20 bill was real, why was it that the person at the store felt so anxious to see this big, tall, dark-skinned black guy. He played black basketball at some point, so he's well over six foot three, and he's in his mid-40s, so kind of spread, so this big guy. And then when this interaction with the police came, why was it that the response was so violent when what they were called for was a non-violent offense? At best, it would have been this fake $20 bill. So when we're speaking to technologists, we want them to really situate that this is not comfortable and that we're going to have to figure out a way to get rid of some of the discomfort that you often called white, often hear called white fragility by um, Angelo and others. And once people have kind of got over the fact that this is structural, it's not about hating white people, it's not about white people being mad, but there are actually these laws and practices that create racism, we go to the action plan. And in the racial literacy framework, the way that we would consider the actual action plan are in two parts. Part of the action plan was peaceful protest which we've seen in New York City, across cities across the United States and actually across the world, which has been really great. But then also the action plan of police reform. So in the US, we're now having a conversation around defunding the police, around getting rid of police and reinvesting that money into social services that would you know, kind of offshoot some of the problems that we use for policing. For example, in Minneapolis, do we really need four police officers if somebody passes a 20 or, or could somebody else have responded, another unit? And then coming out of that policing um, action plan, we're also seeing this action plan of technology. We're seeing IBM, Microsoft and um, IBM, Microsoft and Amazon, the three companies coming out and saying, well, we're not going to sell facial recognition to um, police forces. So in that framework, it allows you to see how you either enforce racism, you know, through these cognitive policies that create certain outcomes for certain people, through to the emotional, you don't care whether black people are disadvantaged, through to the action plan. The action plan is we're gonna keep selling or creating these technologies that are harmful to black people. 
Interesting. I mean, we're recording this on Friday, June 12th. And as you mentioned, just this week, we've seen a big shift with IBM, Amazon and Microsoft uh, make the commitment that you just mentioned on facial recognition technologies. Prior to that, what, what was your sense of the barriers to, the, to racial literacy when it came specifically to the tech sector? So I, I worked in Congress um, for about oh, two years, two, three years. And I was um, an advisor to Congresswoman Yvette Clark, who was the co-chair of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, which oversees Silicon Valley. So her and I really put together this program of briefings because one of the major barriers that we were looking at the federal level in the U.S. where our legislators just did not understand algorithmic um, technologies and how they worked and therefore couldn't understand how they inter interacted with our laws. So for at least the first year of my job, it was inviting legal scholars. We did some work with Daniel Citrone and Marianne Franks around First Amendment issues and what those, how, how those are impacted by you know, social media technologies. We also did, I did, I think, 12 sessions of what is an algorithm and the reason we had to do so many sessions is that people literally wouldn't believe us and say, can you do that again? I'm going to invite my friend. Um, and they couldn't, you know, they're very, very uh, <laughs> strange there. And then another barrier was lobbying. So the same lobbyists that were coming in and saying facial recognition was this great technology because it would help you find children. That was always the, the, you know, the scenario that they put forth are now going to be briefed on this new policy that their companies have around not selling to law enforcement. And lobbyists are incredibly powerful because they, they, they donate to campaigns in the US. We allow corporate donations to political campaigns. And so you are dealing with people who have to raise money as part of their job for their party and for their reelection versus what sounded like at the time bleeding hearts. And I also think as a black woman, people just wouldn't literally not believe what I said. I mean, it just, they would listen and then they would be like, oh, okay, yeah, this isn't really a thing. And that was one of the major reasons that I went to Berkman Klein at Harvard Law School and started to work with professors there on creating, on um, producing scholarship, but also hosting many of these conversations on site so that they would really believe that what I was saying was true. Now, that's a perfect segue into that work. I'd love for you to expand a bit on what they simply didn't believe. And I know that so much of that focus has been on AI algorithms and some of the concern around bias. What are some of the, the real examples out there that, that highlight where the concerns are coming from? So I was going, I was going in to brief uh, federal lawmakers after an Obama administration where the Office of Science and Technology was really in many ways influenced by Eric Schmidt, of, uh, formerly of Google. And the line that was taken by that administration was that technology was this um, liberating force that was gonna drive our economy coming out of the housing crash because people don't really realize that the rise of Silicon Valley came out of another uh, financial disaster that was created in the speculative markets by bankers. And so given that 
there was this real value being created in Silicon Valley and Obama, incredibly charismatic and popular figure, was so supportive of literally anything that they did. He hosted South by South Lawn um, in the final years of his presidency and um, wore code.org caps and was, you know, everybody code and all of this kind of stuff. To go in and then speak to these same lawmakers that had so much trust in that administration and say to them, number one, a mistake was made because there really was no social, there was no analysis of the social impact of using predictive technologies, particularly when those technologies are trained to make decisions using historic data. So what we call AI typically is a marketing term used to describe machine learning technologies. And the way machine learning technologies like facial recognition work is that you feed them the same amount of data, often very similar, and you train them to perform a task. So if you want to uh, train a computer to see something, a face, you may feed a million pictures of faces and you're going to get those faces from the people that you know who are going to be typically white and male in the kind of, uh, you know, machine learning research world. And it takes measurements. So it measures the distance between your eyes, the distance between your ear and your chin, the distance between your uh, neck and your chin, various elements of what constitutes a face, which are called part of your facial architecture, and develops a model which then gives you ranges to, to recognize the face. So if you imagine a facial recognition technology, which is a form of AI, isn't seeing you, what's happening is that your, your image is coming in front of the technology, it's digitized, and then it's trying to match you against a pattern of what it sees as a face. And what ended up happening was skin color became part of that determination and there were not very many people with dark skin in those data sets. Eye circumference became part of that determination. So Asian people were also not necessarily recognized and people who are gender non-conforming or trans would not be recognized because in the labeling, within the system, you are being labeled either as male or female. Because again, this isn't a human intelligence that understands social context. So the issue really then becomes, well, what do we do with this? And one of the things that we do in the US with facial recognition technology is that we sell it to police forces and we sell it to um, arm, uh, other law enforcement. So a big famous example is Amazon's Ring doorbell which is a doorbell that lets you see who's at the door. And it was using its facial recognition technology that had already been found not to be able to recognize uh, people with dark skin through a study at MIT with Joy Bulawami to then not only show you who's at the door, but they'd signed 1,200 contracts with law enforcement um, agencies across the country that said, if a crime took place near your door and you had a ring doorbell, you would then need to give them those digital images that they would then use in their own facial recognition technologies. So going back to this idea of racial literacy and the structure of that, it's really through these legal agreements that are made between companies that have developed all of these racialized problems with AI, as well as the way AI systems are, are designed. 
I know that some of the concerns around the algorithmic issues with respect to race also comes out of some of the Google ads and potential biases. Can you can you talk a bit about what some of the the research has found with respect to the social media or online advertising? So one of the issues that the online advertising space has is that it enables users to do what's called micro-targeting. And in the housing market, and there's a really famous case with Facebook, but Google have had this issue as well. They would allow um, landlords to to target who they wanted to see these uh, housing ads through zip code. And the reason that became a real problem is in the U.S., our zip codes were really uh, part, our zip codes were part of a longer racist history called redlining. And that started just after the war and really extended until the um, Housing Act that came about because of the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King in 1968, where they would uh, create these communities, which were largely black and brown, largely minority communities, divest in those communities, wouldn't allow people that qualified to get loans. They wouldn't, in, because our schooling is based on ha- tax, housing tax, the schools in those areas would be poorly funded because people didn't own homes, right? These were renter communities. And then they wouldn't invest in in. Um, infrastructure or business versus the suburban communities, which were largely white. There was a lot of capital investment because they had to build roads to get people from the suburbs into the city for work, which was a form of employment. People were allowed to buy houses. And because there were houses, the accompanying services were also in those areas. And so now in the US in 2020, if you give somebody your zip code, what you are also giving them is where you would have been assigned according to that policy, because the creation of black and white neighborhoods and then shows like Cops, which has recently been canceled here in the US and Law and Order, which is still running where they're depicting all of this crime in these neighborhoods, meant black people stayed where they were white people stayed where they were, and we have this bigger, larger kind of media structure that reinforced this idea of good neighborhoods and bad neighborhoods. And that's also what Ring Doorbell is trying to recreate. You know, you live in this neighborhood, be scared of your neighbors, take pictures of them, which is also a violation of, of, their, of their privacy. And what that means, that when you go in and say, you're only gonna advertise to people in these certain zip codes, Zip code is a proxy for race, and that's against U.S. US federal housing policy. And so that's why you saw these um, lawsuits being brought forth against those companies. Yeah, no, those did get attention. One, one other example that, that's come up and I was hoping you could speak to is Compass, the Correctional Offender Management Profiling for Alternative Sanctions tool, which uh, was the subject of a ProPublica uh, investigation a number of years ago, which again highlights some of these same issues. Yeah, um, ProPublica worked in exactly, I'm sorry, ProPublica is the publication. Compass worked in exactly the same way. But what was really interesting about Compass is in the algorithm, there would have been no input around criminality in the same way that there's no input around race. That's actually um, illegal in the U.S. So the way ProPublica worked was that... Sorry, the way Compass worked. The way Compass worked. Thank you. The way Compass worked and ProPublica really beautifully laid out in the article was the way that it would use inference 
to get to criminality. So again, zip code data was uh, an input for that for that particular algorithm. It's actually a very common input because it's attached to census tract data and it's very cheap. And it would use things like educational level. And this is on the aggregate. This isn't even individual. Education level, poverty level, health level as predictors for crime. So it would be things like, well, if you live in a low-income neighborhood where people don't have high school diplomas and they're sick, and think about what that means in this COVID moment, right? As we become worried about tracking devices, that's that's the conversation that I'm really getting into because of the parallels with Compass. Then we're not going to let you out or we're going to set a much higher bail for you because you live in the conditions that lead to more criminality whereas and which is again a redlining concern whereas you would have people in other parts of the country perhaps where there is a large opium um, epidemic which are typically white poor neighborhoods that while the census tract data doesn't have these same indicators, it doesn't necessarily mean those people aren't committing crime. And I think the thing that was always so interesting to me about Compass is that they were willing to use this algorithm that not only denied people due process rights in the law, but didn't ask about their criminality. It was all of these unrelated things that they thought maybe kind of would have made you have a live propensity for crime. And surprise, surprise, when the, data was, when the data was analyzed, black people were routinely disadvantaged, white people were routinely advantaged despite having the same profile. And that fell on exactly the same lines as the decisions made within the criminal justice writ large. Right. So you've got so we've now got multiple examples around the potential for bias in terms of trying supposedly to identify the likelihood of recidivism, as you mentioned, with respect to Compass. There's the the bias that takes place some can take place with respect to online advertising. Uh, and then, of course, some of the problems that arise with in the context of facial recognition technologies. We've seen this immediate response in light of what's been taking place over the last number of weeks from Amazon, Microsoft, uh, amongst others, to try to deal with some of these issues in IBM. Uh, I guess my question would be, especially as you were working uh, on Capitol Hill, are there legislative solutions? What are the kinds of approaches that might be taken to try to address some of the, the biases that can arise in this context? So I'm seeing, I, I, I definitely have to say that I'm biased because I worked at the federal level. But at the federal level, we saw the bills I worked on, which were Algorithmic Accountability Act, that will try to get around some of these issues that we've described by um, asking for an impact assessment and having, uh, we have uh, in the US, the FDA before uh, a, a drug can be released um, to the US public, it has to go through certain trials and shown that it's, it's gonna be safe for humans. And our argument was why can't we have something like that for algorithms? Um, and that didn't really go anywhere. I think that we were kind of ahead of our time. We also looked at deep fakes, which was a way for the federal government to think about disinformation and how, um, you know, misleading content can, can lead to political action in the States. And that was in response to the, um, 
a report by special counsel Robert Mueller around election interference in 2016 presidential election. And we also looked at biometric barriers that are created and specifically to housing. And that was in response to a group of activists in Brooklyn here in New York who, who pushed against the, the um, facial recognition units being used in lieu of keys in, in their houses. And so those bills really didn't go anywhere because our executive and our US Senate are in such disarray. But what they did do was start this conversation and did a lot of the foreground for the work that I've, I'm seeing in this police accountability bill that was introduced on Monday in response to Black Lives Matter protests and the demand for ch changing the way that we police. And within that bill, for the first time ever, we saw facial recognition being named as uh, a, a potential threat a, a potential error where racial bias can be introduced into policing. So years of work and suddenly you start, see, start seeing it becoming mainstream in a sense, at least from a legislative perspective. Yes. Um, so it, it sounds like you've got a busy household, so I, I don't want to keep you too long, but I do want to make sure that I have a chance to ask about uh, the organization for which you're a founding CEO, AI for the People, a nonprofit communications agency focused on underrepresentation of black professionals in the tech sector. Can you talk a bit about how you came to establish the organization and, and what, what it's in, actively engaged in? Yeah, so I ended up um, establishing the organization because of structural racism, actually. I was working in the research sector and it was incredibly difficult to get commissions for this type of research, just because race wasn't really seen as, as a factor um, at the time I started in the field or in 2012. And I would go into all of these organizations and didn't really understand the financing structure. And one of the orgs that I worked for, somebody left a budget on a photocopier. And when I realized how much philanthropy were, were donating to this work, I was like, oh my goodness, I need to get on this train because if I had my own organization, then we could actually specialize in the production of this knowledge. And then coming through the congressional work, I was looking at the ways legislators in the US are influenced. And I was on the Hill the same day that T.I., a rapper from Atlanta, was on the Hill and he was advocating for small business reform. And just watching how easily these lawmakers were able to understand what he was saying, which was, in my view, way more complex in terms of banking regulation than some of the things I was saying. And they were willing to engage in it because they felt familiar with him, but they also, they also understood art and they would speak to and debrief things about how much easier it is to understand something when you see it on TV or, or you read about it in a book. And I was thinking, well, you know, this legislative stuff is great. Speaking to lawyers is great. Writing white papers is great, but they're about to pat, they're about to introduce and probably pass this bill based on this artist, which was terrible for my ego because I had been working long and hard and not getting the same results. And so AI for the People was really founded in response to creating a space where Black technolo technology professionals, particularly professionals like myself, who both research and do advocacy work in some, some type of way, could 
really get to do that work. And the way that we would report our work out was through partnerships with journalists and filmmakers and television makers and, and artists and others who would help to really mainstream these ideas through the press and culture. And one of the things that made me realize I was on a good track was we were having a facial recognition hearing here in the US in June and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez talked about how she did not want the US to become like a scene in Black Mirror, which is a, which is a British show in which it's set in a tech dystopia. And I didn't think, I didn't, you never know if you're going to be successful, but as I'm watching how Black Lives Matter have been able to create this, uh, or the movement for Black Lives have been able to create this cultural moment in which we can talk about police, and then within that conversation, talk about technology, has made me realize that we need all players. We need the people that are doing the, you know, writing the white letters. We need people like me who are going on podcasts and training journalists and um, making films and doing all of that great thing. And we need our protesters. We need people who are going to go to the streets and and advocate that we can be better than this. That's an encouraging outcome to, to think about the fact that some of the issues that you've been working on and others have been working on for so many years, oftentimes feeling as if they're not getting much traction, they're not permeating into the political culture, much less into the broader culture. And to see that change taking place now um, has to feel good, although at the same time, it's obvious that there is still so much work to be done. It feels great to be at this place. It feels great that Joy Bulawami, who was studying for her master's at MIT, um, was able to produce scholarship that has, it, you know, emboldened and engaged so many people and other Black women. It feels great that the movement for Black lives were the people that have helped us reimagine the police. But people died, you know, people died. And I'm not going to be able to resolve that on top of all the other grief that I'm I'm going through related to COVID. But I will say one of the things, the funeral has just passed for George Floyd here in the US. And one of the things that he said was that he wanted to change the world. And I think that this cross-racial solidarity and giving white people the license to go through this, that literacy framework that I described, you know, that cognition that, you know, there's really something wrong here. And it's not about me personally, it's about these systems that we live in. And I'm, I'm going to take to the streets makes me ever hopeful because I never thought that this would happen in my lifetime, but I did know it was my life's work. And that's a very bittersweet position to be in. I think it's a perfect, uh, perfect reflection and way to end it. Mutale, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much, Professor Guys. And at any time, call me. I'm here. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron Leboy. 
Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Mm-hmm.